You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Today, we continue our discussion about the 2024 election, some of the top political journalists in our newsroom. First up today, we begin with Hannah Knowles, national political reporter who joins us from on the ground in Des Moines, Iowa. Hannah, welcome back to election 2024. Uh, I think you're muted, maybe. I can't, I can't hear anything. Can people hear me? I think we may have some uh, technical okay. difficulties technical that we're difficulty. working through. Okay, I can hear I can hear Sean now. Can you hear me? You're good now? Yeah. Okay. Okay. okay can you great. repeat the question? Yeah, no, I was just saying welcome back. Um, good to have you from Des Moines. Uh, you've basically moved to Iowa, I guess, for the last couple of weeks here. So we're one week away from the caucuses. Um, and you had this great story last week sort of laying out the state of play. So who has the edge right now and what are you watching uh, from on the ground there, Hannah? Yeah, it's a weird caucus because everyone sort of expects Donald Trump to win at this point. And the question is more, how much does he win by? And is that a margin that, you know, his opponents can turn into some sort of momentum heading into the subsequent states? Or is that like the knockout blow that kind of um, seals the deal for him and sets him on this you know, inevitable path to the nomination. So there's a lot of stuff happening right now. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of door knocking and mailers and TV ads, um, but it's not clear that any of, it, any of it is really denting Trump's lead, which has been at like 30 points in some recent polls. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, does this year's version of the Iowa caucuses, when you talk to Republicans and others on the ground, does it does it have a different feel? Does it feel sort of more potentially anticlimactic or less exciting? Is it sort of generating less interest? Because in the past, we've seen a lot of these nail biters that have come down to the wire. There's a lot of drama and a lot of intrigue. And so, I don't know, does it feel different on the ground as you talk to people as they think about how they've thought about their choices in, in past caucuses? Yeah, definitely. I think there is, you know, there's plenty of hope Still, I think among voters who like DeSantis, voters who like Nikki Haley, um, Haley in particular has some momentum working her way. And there's this sense that, you know, if she does well in Iowa, that's a springboard to New Hampshire where she is pulling closer to Trump. And so I think there's more of a credible case there um, that she can turn that into something um, that could actually work against Trump, but but all of it feels like a long shot. And I think, you know, a lot of people have just written this off as this is the first step towards Trump's renomination. Yeah, it does feel that way, I think, for a lot of people. I'm glad you mentioned Haley. Hannah, I wanted to ask you about her. She launched her campaign a long time ago, uh, back, I think, in February of this year, and sort of flew under the radar for a while. And as you noted, is now sort of emerging as quite possibly the biggest and perhaps uh, only threat against Trump, at least in the eyes of some Republicans. So can you talk about why, like, what is it about Nikki Haley's campaign that has allowed her to gain some degree of momentum in this race? What is it that Republicans like about her at this point? Yeah, she's kind of pitched herself as, um, you know, a conservative who can compromise and she's interested in reaching across the aisle, at least that's how she kind of frames it in her stump speeches. And so when you go to her events, you see a really interesting crowd. I mean, there, you know, there are plenty of Republicans, but there's also Democrats sometimes. Um, I remember we, we wrote a story that mentioned this woman who shows up with a Michelle Obama book. I mean, there are people who just feel like she's, you know, even if her positions on the issues are kind of very similar to her Republican rivals, she's talking about them in a way that's just a bit more 
welcoming um, to some people who maybe feel down on the Republican Party and feel like they don't have much of a, a place there anymore. Um, but yeah, the big question for her is, you know, sure, that can get you 15% maybe in the primary, but how do you build beyond that? And, and does that open you up to attacks from rivals as the, the kind of less staunchly conservative candidate? Yeah, and it seems like she is getting a lot of attacks now, a lot of commercials, a lot of direct engagement from Trump and the other candidate, Ron DeSantis, who's also battling, uh, looks like for a distant second, at least at this point, unless things change in the final week here. You've covered DeSantis uh, since the very beginning of his campaign. Hannah, what is the sort of mood and vibe uh, of his events right now in Iowa in this final stretch? Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 vibe is it's not over till it's over, right? And and they know that, um, you know, they're not uh, on track to win the caucuses at this point for sure, as they once predicted. And I think they they set the expectations, unfortunately, very very high. And now they are just in this battle with Nikki Haley and and trying to prevent her from potentially getting second, which would just be devastating to his. Um, momentum forward. But, you know, he he's still getting crowds. I mean, I've, I've been to events and like that, that there's good energy, but it's just, um, you know, it's a lot of people who were already sold on DeSantis. And I'm not sure, you know, how many people they're still bringing in at this point when Haley is sort of the shinier object for people who want to move on from Trump. Interesting. And there's all this focus on Iowa. I want to ask you, how good of a predictor is Iowa when it comes to who eventually wins the Republican nomination, at least in, in recent years? It's not a great predictor. And I think New Hampshire actually has a better track record. Um, but yeah, there's plenty of times where people win the nomination, and, or sorry, they, they win Iowa, and then it just doesn't translate beyond that. And, and Ted Cruz um, is someone who you see the DeSantis campaign trying to use the same playbook and appealing to evangelical voters in Iowa and hoping that will give them the momentum forward, um, but that did not work out well for Ted Cruz against Donald Trump eventually. Yeah, it did not. Uh, I want to ask you about the issue of abortion, which is another one that you've uh, done a lot of great reporting on over the last year. How how big of an issue is it right now in terms of Iowa and these caucuses? Is this something that comes up a lot when you talk to Iowans? Is this something that the candidates are mentioning a lot on the ground? How does this factor into this competition right now? Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of Republicans, even um, Republicans who would describe themselves as pro-life, don't really want it to be central in the presidential race. And they just, they, you know, they've seen in election after election since Roe v. Wade was overturned, this turned into a really toxic issue for Republicans. And so I think there's a fair amount of hesitance around that, even in Iowa, this state that is more and and very conservative, and you have a lot of um, Christian conservatives turning out to the caucus. But at the same time, um, you definitely see the candidates trying to appeal to that activist um, constituency here. And even Nikki Haley, who's kind of tried to strike more of this tone of compromise on abortion, um, she has a video out touting her support from uh, Marlis Potma, who was like a founder of uh, a, a prominent anti-abortion group in Iowa. And so, you know, they're all trying to boost their credentials on that issue, at least here in Iowa. New Hampshire is kind of a different story. Yeah, really fascinating dynamic there. Okay, uh, last thing I wanted to ask you, Hannah, we do have one more last debate before these caucuses. It's yet again, an unusual debate. Uh, Donald Trump's not gonna be there. He's gonna be doing something differently. 
Can you sort of lay out what we can expect to see on Wednesday night and sort of how unusual uh, this is compared to past debate cycles and, and election cycles? So it's going to be DeSantis and Haley at this point. Uh, Trump qualified, but as usual, he's skipping it because his team just thinks, why would we give um, these lower polling rivals the chance to um, draw some blood? We just we just don't need to. We're so far ahead. Um, but yeah, this could be really important for DeSantis and Haley. It's sort of their last big chance um, to make an impression and to shake things up ahead of the caucuses. Um, they've both been going really hard at each other over the past week. They had back-to-back -back town halls on CNN recently, and they kind of didn't, it was interesting, they didn't go after each other as much as we thought they would. They really mostly went after Trump, but um, I think that could change when they're actually in this debate format. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see this sort of one-on-one -on -one that we have not seen yet, um, at least in this cycle. Um, okay, Hannah Knowles, we'll have to leave it right there. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay warm, stay safe in the snowy days of Iowa uh, as we march towards these caucuses. Okay, I want to continue the conversation right now with two more of our top campaign reporters, Isaac Arnsdorf, a national political reporter, and Dylan Wells, who are both joining us right now. Isaac and Dylan, welcome back to Election 2024. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Okay, Isaac, I want to start with you. Uh, you've covered the Trump campaign uh, very closely over the last year. A as Hannah was talking about, they come into this as uh, a pretty big favorite. Uh, how would you sort of describe the mood of the campaign right now? Is there anything that worries them as they head into this final week, even though they're they're winning by a lot? Anything that they are trying to do uh, to try to close this deal and to try to win these caucuses on Monday? Well, there's a tricky expectations game going on because you've got a lot of these polls with Trump with these huge double digit leads. And, uh, you know, you've got the candidate out there himself. Uh, bragging about those leads to his supporter. So, you know, at the, he's lately been a, a little bit more disciplined about uh, making the next sentence be, but don't get complacent. You still have to turn out and vote, um, which I'm sure his advisors are very happy about. Um, but, you know, if if it turns out to be still, uh, it could be, you know, the, the record for a Republican winning the Iowa caucuses is 12 points from 1988. So, you know, there's sort of a scenario where Trump blows that record out of the water, but maybe doesn't win as commandingly as everyone's expecting. Uh, and then the campaign is going to be shouting to still call it a historic win, even though a lot of people are going to be trying to downplay that and, and, and make the race look closer going into New Hampshire. Yeah, it's a really good point about the 12 point record. I mean, I can't even remember the last public poll that we've seen that was, you know, within 12 points, like Trump has just been up by by so, so much. And then another uh, unusual wrinkle I wanted to ask you about, Isaac, is he's not in Iowa today. He was there over the weekend. He's not going to be in Iowa tomorrow. But in a sense, he is sort of making a, a, a campaign appearance, or at least in a way. Um, uh, can you talk about what he's doing tomorrow far away from Iowa and sort of what the impact could be uh, in, in this race in the final stretch? Well, that's the story I'm supposed to be writing for you right now. Uh, he is uh, tomorrow, uh, two times this week, he's going to be in court instead of on the campaign trail. So tomorrow here in D.C., 
um, uh, he's going to be attending the oral argument in his appeal, trying to block the prosecution, uh, the federal prosecution for trying to overturn the 2020 election uh, based on a claim that he is immune from any prosecution for anything he did as president. And then Thursday, he's going to be going back to New York for the civil trial over alleged fraud at his businesses. So, you know, those are not traditional campaign stops for the week before the caucus, but they very much are campaign events for this Trump campaign. And we're going to be seeing a lot more of this over the course of the year as the campaign calendar and the court schedules continue to overlap and collide. And Trump and his campaign are going to be flying back and forth from courthouses to rallies. And, you know, their whole strategy in both venues is to make them one and the same, to blend them, to make the the prosecutions look political and to leverage the prosecutions to uh, to motivate his supporters. Yeah, a really unusual dynamic. Dylan, I want to turn to you. You've uh, spent a lot of time in Iowa covering and beyond covering Nikki Haley, who, when it comes to Trump, is seen by a lot of Republicans as perhaps uh, the strongest candidate right now uh, with the best hope of, of stopping him. So What's the what's the mood out there right now when you've covered these Haley events and, and what is the thinking inside the campaign about how well they can do in Iowa uh, with seven days left to go until the caucuses? I've been covering the Haley campaign since she launched last February, and there's definitely been a noticeable increase in the number of supporters and people wanting to hear her message showing up at her events. Really, in the last several months, we started to see that momentum growing. But I was in New Hampshire with her last week, and it was on a much larger scale. She had 700 people turn out to support her there and learn about her message, um, which is not something we were seeing from her earlier in this year by any means. In Iowa, I would say she doesn't have quite the momentum that she has right now in New Hampshire, where she is the closest to Trump there. And her campaign has been pretty careful about expectation setting ahead of the caucus. You know, unlike the DeSantis team, they weren't claiming that they were going to win the state or come in second. Um, their focus has been more on New Hampshire. With that said, the caveat being Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire last week uh, at a Haley event that he was um, speaking at said that Haley was going to win New Hampshire and come in second, defeating Ron DeSantis here in Iowa. So he kind of increased the stakes from her camp a little bit. Yeah, a little bit of a departure from the usual setting the bar low, which is the sort of campaign 101 thing that a lot of people are taught. Um, we'll see how that works out. Uh, for them. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about this great story, uh, Dylan, that you and Hannah had today about Nikki Haley, which sort of tracked, you know, over time how she has for a long time been a very uh, disciplined candidate, has not created a lot of controversies with her comments, but that seems to have changed at least in the past week and a half or so. Um, how has that changed and, and what's the impact been in this race? As you said, Haley has avoided unwanted controversy for the vast majority of this campaign. And now in this crunch time before Iowa and New Hampshire, I think it's the last 11 days, she's been facing some backlash and attacks from her rivals 
over a few different comments, most notably when a attendee at one of her town halls asked her about the causes of the Civil War, and she did not mention slavery. And the next day, she quickly uh, amended her answer and said, of course, slavery is part of it. I thought he was asking about kind of going forward. And then last week in New Hampshire at an event I was at, she said that she was kind of joking with the crowd there and said, you know, Iowa starts this race and then New Hampshire corrects it. And then we go to my home state of South Carolina. And the DeSantis campaign has just been attacking her constantly for that remark, saying Iowans don't need to be corrected. You know, she's disrespecting you. I was at a DeSantis event yesterday where he mentioned it several times during the event. So while these blunders or walkbacks are on the scale of things in this presidential primary, obviously not as, you know, the same level as, for example, former President Trump using the same language uh, as Hitler. They are things that are opening up new lines of attack for her at this moment where she really is surging and her rivals are jumping on anything they can to try to differentiate themselves in this last week. Yeah, it seems like if nothing else, it's a distraction that she has to constantly answer. What is that old adage? Like if you're explaining, you're not winning or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's more time, I guess, she has to devote to that kind of stuff. Um, Isaac, I wanted to take a step back for a second and, and talk a little bit about kind of how we got to this point where Trump is so dominant. You and a couple of your colleagues had this really, really terrific piece last week that sort of unpacks what we've seen with some new reporting behind the scenes over the last year seems like there, there was a point after the midterms where Trump looked potentially vulnerable. We're at a very different point now. So how did we get from there to here? And what did you find uh, in, in your reporting of that story? Yeah, I mean, if you think back to when Trump launched this campaign right after the 2022 midterms, it was really an unusually weak political moment for him. Um, Republicans underperformed in that midterms, underperformed expectations. And a lot of Republicans were blaming Trump for that because it was his endorsed candidates who were all election deniers uh, who got rejected um, in all the key states. And so he, he had to go ahead with announcing because he had already committed to it. And then the first thing he did was he had Thanksgiving or right before Thanksgiving dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. And then he uh, posted on social media about trying to terminate the Constitution. So did not get off to a strong start, was definitely not clear that uh, this is where we would be a week out from Iowa with such a huge lead in the polls. So how did that happen? Uh, a few things. One is his campaign um, in the wake of the Yay Fuentes dinner um, did a lot to 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 manage his exposure to uh, try to remind Republican primary voters what they liked about Trump, give them a little bit of time to get over the midterms, and and not get him out there too much where he was uh, dominating headlines like he is now and uh, motivating Democrats so much. Um, the other thing that happened was. DeSantis uh, did not get into the race until May, and that gave Trump a huge head start to start attacking him and bringing down his favorables when really most Republicans who didn't want Trump to be the nominee had all their hopes pinned on DeSantis. And then that last thing is the, uh, the difficulty that those Republicans who were hoping for someone besides Trump the difficulty that they found in, in in finding a message or a challenger that would work against Trump. And we did a lot 
lot of reporting about, it was not for lack of trying, uh, a lot of money and research went into focus groups and polling, you know, could you attack Trump for being soft on crime because he uh, had a criminal justice reform bill? Could you attack Trump for not finishing the wall when he said he was going to build a wall? And all of these, almost all of these attacks just actually backfired. now, even to the point of if you had a side-by-side policy comparison between Trump and another candidate, uh, voters sort of saw that as an implicit attack on Trump, and it made the other candidate uh, appear less favorable. So really, the only thing they came up with that sort of worked was this idea that you know maybe Trump was too chaotic, too much drama, and it's time uh, you know he might have trouble winning against Biden and. Uh, why take the risk? And so that's really the only message that you're hearing from DeSantis or from Haley or any of these outside groups. But the thing is, a lot of Republican voters still like Trump. Yeah, it seems that that comes through pretty strongly in all the reporting that you guys have done um, over the last year. Um, But to return to Haley for a second, Dylan, it does seem like some Republicans are, you know, certainly many Republicans are giving her a look right now. And that has gotten the attention of the Trump campaign, of Trump allies. You're starting to hear uh, former President Trump attack her more on immigration and some other issues. She's also, as you mentioned, taking a lot of heat from DeSantis and some of his allies. So how is Haley sort of dealing with this new position of being the target of attacks after sort of flying under the radar for so long? Yeah, her campaign is framing this as just a sign that her opponents are worried about where she is in this race. But with all those growing attacks, she's remained very on message. She's always very scripted in how she responds to things and kind of leaning into that line of messaging that Isaac just mentioned about chaos. You know, she has a few key lines she uses in her town halls talking to voters about the former president who she did serve for as U.N. ambassador. And she says that she thinks that he was the right president at the right time. She talks about their working relationship together at the United Nations. And then she says, like it or not, chaos follows him. You know, I'm right that there's always something going on with him. And because of that, she then kind of pivots to this look forward about the polls we've seen of head-to-heads between Trump and Biden, where in some they're even, and some Trump is leading by a small margin. And she says in those same polls, I am leading by 17 points. That means we're going to win Congress. We're going to win the governorships, even down to the school board. So she's really focused on electability, which is a message we've seen throughout her whole campaign. Uh, she frequently points out that Republicans have lost seven out of the eight last popular elections and is trying to frame herself for voters as the one who can move the party forward and actually make Republicans win. Um, But with that are caveats of, you know, some supporters say she isn't being hard enough on Trump and some say she's being too harsh on him. It's a line that she's trying to walk. Yeah, and a difficult one that a lot of Republicans have not figured out exactly how to effectively walk as we've seen in the last few years. Um, Okay, so it's a sort of quiet, unusually quiet day on the trail in Iowa today. Trump's not campaigning. DeSantis uh, is preparing for his state of the state in Florida. Um, Haley's holding a limited schedule. There's some uh, pretty bad weather. Uh, Dylan, you can fill us in on the weather. But it was a busy uh, uh, weekend uh, this past weekend. Uh, and it was also January 6th. And Isaac, I wanted to ask you uh, about what we heard from former President Trump on the anniversary of this attack on the Capitol. We've heard him you know, time after time continue to make false statements about uh, the 2020 election. Um, what did we hear from him and what was the reaction 
on Saturday? Well, he didn't do like a special speech or special event specifically geared toward the anniversary, um, but he didn't need to. Uh, he still uh, continued to escalate uh, the way that he talks about January 6th. And this has been a long process ever since it happened um, from initially wanting to distance himself from the violence, um, wanting to distinguish between the rally at the White House versus the riot at the Capitol to more and more aligning himself uh, with the people in the mob, defending their actions, saying that he would pardon the people who have been uh, arrested or convicted. Uh, and to the point that uh, on Saturday, on the anniversary, he was calling them, uh, uh, he had previously been saying political prisoners. And, and this new term that he's now using as a further escalation is hostages. And he called on, uh, on President Biden to, quote, release the hostages. Yeah, it's certainly an issue that uh, I think a lot of Republicans and Democrats are uh, paying attention to in terms of how he talks about this versus how President Biden and others talk about it. And I wanted to switch for a second to uh, President Biden and uh, the Democratic race. There is a Democratic primary right now. It's not uh, quite as active, at least right now, as the Republican one. Uh, but uh, the Post had some reporting from uh, our colleague Tyler Pager over the weekend uh, about uh, a conversation that former President Obama had uh, with former President Biden expressing some reservations about uh, his, at least the, the structure of how he's tried to um, arrange his campaign operation. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Dylan, uh, about what's going on on the Democratic side right now. Again, it has been sort of a, a sleepier campaign, but um, you've talked to some you know, Democratic strategists, others, activists, uh, about what's going on there. Is there, is there a degree of worry about the Biden campaign on the Democratic side, uh, uh, you know, that sort of echoes uh, Obama's worry right now? Or, or what does your reporting show about that? Not much is happening on the Democratic side. <laughs> Normally, in a typical year in the past, we would have Democrats campaigning here, too, Iowa leading the calendar for both parties. But given the calendar switch up over the last year, um, instead, South Carolina is leading for Democrats. And that's where Joe Biden was today. He actually was doing a speech at Mother Emanuel there in Charleston. And it's one of a few recent appearances we've seen from him outside of D.C. doing these more campaign focused events. Um, but he hasn't been doing that much <laughs> in terms of, you know, compared to the Republicans who are currently trying to win this primary. Obviously, he is the incumbent, so it's a bit of a different ordeal. Um, but I have talked to some strategists and I've talked to a lot of voters who have said that they are concerned that they're not really seeing him out there on the trail more. I cover a lot of young voters for The Washington Post and a lot of the young Democrats who would consider themselves, you know, committed liberals who turn out in every election. They ask me, they're not even sure that Joe Biden is running for president or not, or if there is a serious primary challenger for him. Um, so it's a bit of a different dynamic on that side, although I think we are expecting to see him hit the trail more now that we are in election year. Yeah, it is really a fascinating dynamic because he just he doesn't hold campaign events in the way that candidates traditionally do or in the way that uh, in, in the way that Republicans do. Um, another unusual thing, Isaac, I wanted to go back to you on for a second, is uh, this uh, debate night that we have on Wednesday. Once again, Donald Trump not going to be appearing at this debate. I was thinking over time about the different ways in which he has tried to sort of do something or hold an event or, or do an interview that is different and meant to counter-program the actual debate. Can you talk a little bit about what he's doing this time and what the sort of thinking is about why he wouldn't join this debate with 
Nikki Haley and with Ron DeSantis? Well, the Trump campaign took a risk by skipping the debates, um, particularly the first debate. It was not clear that that was going to work, uh, that 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 boycotting the debate. And, you know, it could depending on how it went that night, um, you know, he might have been defenseless. Um, but instead, what the way that it played out um, and they feel very good about this in hindsight is that it, it just kept the froze the campaign in place as Trump and everybody else and never let anyone get on his level to have the chance to take him on or get any oxygen or break through. And so he's sticking with that uh, to the point that on Wednesday, um, Haley and DeSantis are going to be debating each other on CNN and uh, Fox or uh, uh, Trump is going to be over on Fox having his own town hall. Yeah, a, a very unusual thing that we haven't seen uh, before, at least in, in past cycles. Dylan, uh, I'll give you the last word on the debate. You've watched Haley uh, debate for a long time. These debates have been good for her, right? Like these have been uh, things that I think a lot of Republicans, it comes up in polling and in interviews, um, that they see as a, a reason why they've supported her. So what are you watching for uh, on Wednesday night when she's in this one-on-one -on -one debate against Ron DeSantis? And how much do you think she'll actually bring up Donald Trump, even though he's not on the debate stage? Well, she would love to debate Donald Trump. I think that both her and DeSantis have been saying that they are like, he's weak for not joining them on the debate stage, just any attack that they can to try to get him to join in those debates um, without any luck, obviously. Um, but head to head with DeSantis, I think we're going to see a lot more depth in their attacks against each other now that they are the only two who are going to be on stage on Wednesday. Uh, as I mentioned, I was at a DeSantis event here in Iowa yesterday, and as he was going through the Q&A portion at the end of his event, he would almost throw in attacks at Nikki Haley as an aside in his answers. He'd, he'd answer it and say, and by the way, have you heard Nikki Haley did so-and-so? Um, and so all of those lines of attack are definitely going to come up on Wednesday, and she's going to have to respond to them, which she has started doing in her town halls. But as this race just gets increasingly close to the Iowa caucus, the tenor is increasing as well. Yeah, lots to watch on Wednesday night and in the coming days. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so we'll have to leave it right there. Isaac Arnsdorf and Dylan Wells, thank you both so much for joining us today. And uh, Dylan, stay warm in that Iowa weather. Uh, Isaac, when you get there, put on an extra jacket. I'll be packing extra gear myself. It'll be really, really cold. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.